want to express my sincere appreciation for each one of you being here today, for your participation in the assembly thus far. We have a good-sized crowd, and we have some that are not normally with us. We count you as an honored guest, and we're thankful that you're here and invite you to come and be with us at each opportunity. It is my prayer as we leave this place later today that we can say that we have worshipped God in spirit and in truth. As elders of the church, we have a responsibility to provide oversight and leadership and vision for the congregation. In doing so, we have developed a mission statement, you might say, and that mission statement is that at Northwest Church of Christ, we want to restore the New Testament church. What would we mean by the statement, we want to restore the New Testament church? What we mean is we want to go back to the complete and final revelation of God, completed in the New Testament, and we want to identify the church that is taught there. We want to, take, we want to wear the name that they wore, we want to use the organization that they used. We want to teach the congregation as they were taught. We want to worship with the same elements and the same process that they worshiped with. We want to teach the same plan of conversion that they taught to bring people into the church. We want to emphasize the same things that we find are emphasized there in the Holy Writ such as evangelism being the primary goal that we have as a people of God and as a congregation, the body of Jesus Christ. Why would we want to have as our mission to restore the New Testament church? We believe that the Bible is very clear about the importance of going back and obeying God's will. We believe that because of what Jesus Christ taught over and over in the New Testament. Here is one instance of the words of Christ. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Christ said that lip service and surface religion will not allow us to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But the criteria for being a part of the kingdom of heaven is to do God's will. And we know that God's will is found in His Word. As we sang the song just a moment ago, Give Me the Bible, it illuminates our path through this life. It tells us what we're to do individually, and it tells us what we're to do as a body of the Lord's church. We want to speak where the Scriptures speak. We want to be silent where the Scriptures are silent. We want to use pattern theology. That means we're going to go to the Scriptures and we're going to find the pattern that's given there and then we're going to humbly submit to that pattern. Have you ever heard the phrase sola scriptura? That's a Latin phrase that means the Scriptures only, the Scriptures alone. All of these different ideas express the same mission of our church, and that is to look to God's Word, 
to restore the New Testament church. There are literally thousands of different practices and different doctrines that we find in religion today. Many of these doctrines contradict each other. Many of them are not found in the Word of God. People will say, well, just read the Bible and whatever it speaks to you, do that. And as long as you do that in faith, God's going to be pleased. They will read the Bible and whatever it speaks to them, they'll do that and God will be pleased. That is a very nice sounding theory, but it's nowhere found in God's Word. Christ said, if we want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, we have to follow the will of God. Christ Himself said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There are not many roads leading to the same place, but we have to identify God's will and then we have to be obedient to it. Christ said again in John 12, verse 48, The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Do you see why it's important to restore the New Testament church? Do you see why it's important that we examine what we do as individuals and as a church? Paul admonished that we should examine ourselves, evaluate ourselves, whether we be in the faith. We're to prove our own selves. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So again, we go back to God's Word. If we obey through faith and follow His will, we will be a part of the kingdom of heaven. There's no greater thing that would motivate us than to be a part of the kingdom of heaven because that's where all of God's blessings are found. As elders of this congregation, we love every individual and every family. And it is our ultimate goal that all of us one day will be in heaven together. Do you think if we're not a member of the kingdom here, that one day we're going to go to heaven? The Bible teaches we have to be a member of the kingdom here, and one day we will be blessed to, be a, to have eternity in heaven. Timothy was admonished that he must rightly divide the word of truth. So we talk a lot about the Bible and going to the Bible and following the Bible, but we have to follow what the Bible teaches, not go there and pick bits and pieces, determine things that we like and accept them and things that we don't like and accept them. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. If there's a right way to do that, then there's also, stands to reason, there's a wrong way. The Greek definition of the phrase rightly divide means to cut a straight course, to lay out a road, or to correctly interpret. This is our task as we go to God's Word to make sure that we are rightly dividing it. Our concept of truth is made up of different elements. One of these elements is called tradition. I've been told if a certain practice is put into place and it's practiced for a hundred years, then that practice is no longer questioned. Our grandparents did it, our parents did it, we're doing it, and there's no question that it could be wrong or that there's no authority in Scripture for it. We need to be very careful that as we consider tradition and our perspective about truth because of tradition, 
that we do not fall to things that are not found in God's Word. We have past experiences. We have voices from other people, from the TV, the radio, the internet, books that we might read, our neighbors that want to talk to us about religion. All of these different voices speak to us, and our perspective of truth is affected by this. We all have these things that affect our lives. We have personal preference. My intellect or my logic, my intuition, I think this is right and I think this is wrong. And we tend to follow that and go to the Bible and try to prove it. Of course, anyone that seeks after God, who wants to be obedient unto God, realizes that His Word is a part of it. But the reality is that every one of us has a mix of these perspectives whereby we settle on what is right and wrong, what is truth and what is not truth. We must be very careful how we put these in order of priority. We must always put God's Word at the very top. If we practice a tradition that is congruent with God's Word, then hang on to it. What if it isn't? Then we need to get rid of it. We need to adjust it. We need to take our own preferences and mold them to what we find in God's Word. And unless we approach the study of God's Word in that way, we will be misled. Formula for rightly dividing the truth. Set aside preconceived ideas. Compile all passages in their context. This morning we're going to discuss the subject of church Bible classes. And we're going to look at a lot of scriptures this morning. We're not going to have time to read the context of every scripture. But I would encourage you to take these scriptures and look at them in their context and see if they are teaching what we present them to be teaching. That's important. I do not ask you to accept what I say because I'm saying it. I ask you to accept it because the Bible says it. And it's your responsibility to take the Word and to make sure that it's being taught in a correct way. We identify the Bereans often from Acts 17 verse 11 that they heard the Word, but they took that Word and they studied daily to see whether those things were so. And it's important that we do that to rightly divide the Word of Truth. We need to use the Bible as its own commentary to define and explain itself. We need to apply the proper system of interpretation. There's people that look at the Bible like just a nice storybook with a lot of fairy tales in it that's entertaining. Other people look at it as a book of suggestions that we can take or leave. Other people go to the Bible thinking that it's a, over 2,000 years old, the writing of the New Testament, and it's not a valid thing for us to go by anymore in this modern society. We need to understand that it is the complete and final revelation of God, and it is just as much aware and addresses our needs today as it did the day that it was written. And we need to apply the proper system of interpretation. This is a model that we've used before here at the congregation to talk about how we divide the Bible, rightly divide it. How that we look to certain things that are God's legislated rules 
represented in the pink on the screen. We see that God delivers these things, whether it be a moral rule or a doctrinal rule. He does that with either a positive or a negative commandment. He does it by example. Some examples are binding and some examples are not. We have to study the context so that we know. And in the upper right part of the, of the pink is a very important concept that many people are not aware of, and that is the positive, exclusive command. God gives us a commandment, a certain way to do something, and with that command, then we're to follow that. We're not to add to it or take away from it or substitute anything in its place. We refer to that as pattern theology. God has used this throughout the ages to teach His people. Remember Noah? God gave Noah a pattern to build the ark. Noah completed that pattern and he saved his family because he followed that pattern. God gave Moses a pattern for the tabernacle, a very intricate, detailed pattern. They followed that pattern, they used the materials, they used the dimensions, and they put that tabernacle together exactly as God commanded them to do so. And they were blessed because of that. God came and dwelt in that tabernacle because they followed the pattern. Today, we have patterns for what the church does. We mentioned we want to seek those patterns and we want to restore what we find that the New Testament church did. We want to replicate that today here at Northwest Church of Christ. Of course, there's things that fall into the category of judgment. We have those personally. We have them as family. The fathers of the family are to make the final decisions in areas of judgment. In the church, the elders have that responsibility. We'll be held accountable for how we make those decisions for the congregation. And we're to use our best judgment in expediency based on God's Word. What time are we going to have church? Who's going to be the speaker Wednesday night? When are we going to have a gospel meeting? Who's going to come and preach that gospel meeting? We could list on and on judgments that need to be made regarding the church, and we want to make those judgments correctly. But what we have to be very careful of we often want to take God's legislated patterns or His commandments and we want to move them over and we want to make them a matter of judgment. Use our preference. Use our tradition. Set aside God's legislated rules and that's not rightly dividing His Word. Sometimes we want to take our judgments and we want to make them rules. If we do either one of those, then we are not following the process to rightly divide the Word of Truth. So I wanted to give this introduction this morning to set the pace for how we're going to look into this subject of church Bible classes. I want to define what I'm talking about before we go any further. We see that often a church is called together for the purpose of edification, they are divided into different places. They're divided based on age. Sometimes adults are divided based on gender for different like interests maybe. And men and women teach those classes. They're taught simultaneously. 
generally for about an hour. Men are teaching anyone. Women are to teach only women and children. This is the basic concept of church Bible classes. And of course, there's going to be slight differences dependent on who you talk to and what they practice. Most churches practice the church Bible class system. Many religious experts advocate this practice. We talked about all of the different voices that we listen to that teach on what they believe the truth is and how that we have these articles and books and on the internet and on the, on the TV in different places. And you will hear many people that advocate this practice of church Bible classes. A lot of people depend on these classes to train their children. They outsource, so to speak, and they take their children and drop them off at the church. Or maybe they go participate also, but their children are taken to a different area and someone is teaching them there. Many would tell you that the church is incomplete without the Bible classes. Our question today that we want to go to God's Word and answer is should we practice Bible classes? And what can we find in the Word of God regarding this practice? I would submit to you today that God has a plan for teaching His people. And I believe that plan and that pattern can be found in His Word. Remember what Isaiah said in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the, heaven are higher than the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." God is the Creator. We are the ones that have been created. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He is the Almighty God, holy, righteous, in which there is no untruth. He is the God of truth. And He knows better what we need than we know how to guide ourselves. And that's the point. His ways are above our ways. So as we identify His ways then we should humbly submit and follow those ways. God does not give us an inferior plan for anything. He knows what we need. The Bible thoroughly furnishes us with all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And He gives us the best pattern, the best plan, what we need. And so that's what we want to look for as we go to God's Word this morning. You know, God has dealt with mankind over the years. The first 2,500 years from creation, He talked directly to the elder members of the families. It's called the patriarchal age. And then when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, God dealt with the Jews for 1,500 years through that law. Christ came along and He lived under the law of Moses and He completely fulfilled that law. He lived without sin. When He died on the cross, He nailed that law to the cross. And now we live under the Christian age. And we have to rightly divide God's Word into these different dispensations to understand what's, what God's will is for us. Because there are certain things He commanded in the patriarchal age that was just for them. 
certain things in the Mosaical Age that was just for that group of people for that time frame. Now they've been taken out of the way and we have something different. But I want to submit to you this morning that God's plan for teaching His people started in the very beginning and it has not changed up until this day. That His plan for the method of teaching and what we find in His Word has not changed. And I want to use these verses to show you that. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, along with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, are verses that we're going to look at as we go forward. But right now, I want to look at a particular part of the verse it says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And then he goes on in verse 35 and talks about if, if they want to learn something, they, they need to do that outside of the assembly. But what does the phrase mean in verse 34, as also saith the law? Paul is pointing out that the regulations that are being talked about here for church assemblies were also the regulations in earlier times. They were stated the same way in other laws. Remember we said we need to look at these verses from the Bible and, and help let the Bible define what certain meanings are? If we want to understand what he's talking about when he says, also saith the law, we can look at a parallel passage that I mentioned in 1 Timothy 2.11. Here it says, Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Which law was this? Was this the law of Moses or some other law? Actually, it was another law. Even though the law of Moses taught the same thing, the law under reference here was given before the law of Moses. It's a law that was given in the Garden of Eden. It was a law that was based on the fact that Adam was created first and then Eve and secondly, it was based on what happened in Genesis 3 when Eve was taken in the temptation and ate of the forbidden fruit. And then she gave that fruit to Adam and he ate also. So these laws that govern God's plans for teaching go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And so as we go back and look in the Old Testament and we look at certain passages, we can make a note that these laws have been in effect all of that time. The changing of the dispensations did not change this particular plan or pattern that we find in God's Word. This law was stated in Genesis 3 verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over you. We should not get the wrong idea from this that women are inferior to men. Submission and inferiority are not equivalent terms. But God made the decision at this point because Eve 
was deceived by Satan that she would not rule over man, but that man would rule over her. And as we turn through the pages of the Bible, we're going to see that this is in effect. God instituted the home in Genesis chapter 2 when He instituted marriage for Adam and Eve. That marriage relationship was set so that man and woman would be in a fulfilling relationship, but also so that they would bring forth children. And we see that in the beginning of God's plan for teaching, we find the home. The home is made up of the father and the mother and the children. Let's look at the father's duties in the home. We're going to go back and we're going to look at this pattern because as we said, it's been the same throughout the writing of the Bible. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. God selected Abraham. He's referred to as the father of the faithful. And there was a reason given why God selected Abraham. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. It has always been that God wanted righteous fathers to train their children. And he knew that about Abraham, and that's the reason, or one of the reasons, that he selected him. God's redemptive plan depended on the offspring of Abraham following God. And some 40 generations later, Christ came in the lineage of Abraham. That's why God made this statement and why it is so important to consider the father's role in the home in teaching the children. The very last verse of the Old Testament. We don't read this very often, but look what is said before a 400 year of silence from any inspired word from God. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Do you think it's important to God that fathers fulfill the role that they have within the home? That their heart is directed toward their children and training their children in the ways of God so that they can grow up and be a viable person in society and have the right relationship with God. It's very important to God that this be done. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 as we come to the New Testament, And ye fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This responsibility is put on the father more than any other person. We're going to look at mother and what her responsibilities are next. But look at who God gave the responsibility to. Does this say, church, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Does it say, grandparents, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? We can influence the rearing of children no matter who we are if we have a relationship with them. But the main responsibility is put to the father. Here's mom. We read about the evangelist Timothy, and we read that his father was a Greek. And so the Bible gives us an explanation about how Timothy gained true faith, true biblical faith. 
2 Timothy 1, verse 5, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. These women of the home knew that Timothy needed these instructions, and the Bible tells us that they took care of that. And we know that husband and wife are to be one in all ways. They're to be one spiritually. They're to be a team that together provides the best environment for children to be trained and to be brought up in the ways of the Lord. The family unit is the best qualified to raise their children. Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Children are commanded to obey their parents, to give them honor and respect. That's a part of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? The one that comes with promise, that children obey and respect and honor their parents. Children have a role here, but the adults are the ones that provide the vision, they provide the leadership, they provide the oversight. Just as we talked about elders doing that for the congregation, the parents are to do that in the home. Let's look to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Where does it start? It starts in the heart of the parents. You know what? If parents are taking their responsibility seriously, they're going to have a lot of questions, hard questions to answer that their kids are going to bring into the, into the discussion. As parents, if we take this responsibility serious, we're going to study God's Word. It has to be in our heart first before we can provide that to others. And if we're not careful, parents outsource their responsibility, and that limits their Bible study, and they are not as well versed in the Scriptures as they should be. What does verse 7 say? And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of the house and on thy gates. Who do you suppose has the most time to train their kids in a spiritual realm? It's going to always be the parents. If that home is stable and operating according to God's plan, you are not going to out-influence what the parents teach their children. They're there when they sit down. They're there when they walk. They're there in the morning. They're there in the afternoon. Our kids go to school part of the time, but their school hours are still minimal compared to the family time. If parents take their duty responsibly, they're going to do that at all times. They're going to be looking for opportunities to train their children, to put these things out in front of them. The Pharisees took some of these commandments literally, and they wore a little box with a scroll with a printed scripture on it right here on their head. And they had another box on their arm with the scripture. That's not what God was talking about. 
He was saying that we're to put these precepts of God in front of our children night and day at every opportunity. And we do that when we train and mentor our children in the home. Statistics on youth leaving the church is very, very scary. There's a documentary called Divided. And if you hadn't seen this documentary and you're interested in it, I'd recommend it. It's by a person in the denominations that began to look at some of these processes within the church and how they're performing. And if they are achieving the things that, the goals that they were set to achieve. And I'm told that across churches, 80% of the children are leaving the church when they reach adulthood. This is children that were taken to church, that were involved in these different practices, in these different churches, and when they reach adulthood, they're leaving the church. This is scary to me. Which four kids are we going to pick out of five here and turn over to the devil when they reach adulthood? These are serious matters. We need to look at God's plan, and we need to put that plan into effect. The foundational teaching is going to happen in the home. It's going to happen when the father is the spiritual leader of the home. When the mom works alongside the father to see that their children are trained. So many fatherless in our world today. What are we going to do to help somebody that doesn't have a father? We need to come alongside the parent or parents that they do have and we need to give them the tools that they need to train their children. That's the plan that we find in God's Word. That's what we need to be teaching and admonishing. So many young families here with young children coming into this life. Are we going to make provision for them as God directs? Or are we going to let them down? Are they going to be overtaken by the world because of our diminished attitude of what we need to be doing to properly train our kids? God has given father and mother the primary responsibility for teaching their kids, and God bless all of our parents when we take this responsibility serious and we, we do what God has asked us to do. What was God's plan for teaching His people Israel? I want to turn to Deuteronomy 31 and read some verses here. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel has come to appear before the Lord thy God, in the place before the Lord thy God, or in the place which he shall choose, thou shalt read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Okay, now we're going to the corporate level. God's people coming together as he commanded them in one place and the law being read before them. This is the equivalent of our assembly that we're having this morning, where the law is being read. We're here, families together, men, women, and children, to receive the teaching. Notice verse number 12. Gather the people together. The format of God's plan was for His people to be together when the law was taught. Men and women and children and thy stranger that is within thy gates that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words 
of this law. God tells us through this command and through this example that children can learn in an environment just like this. He comes back to it and even re-emphasizes it in verse 13. And that their children which have not known anything may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land whether you go over Jordan to possess it. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that these children that are sitting here in these pews are capable of learning? God said they were. That's the format that He put them in. Of course, with the home providing the foundational teaching and then the integrated family worship to come together and for this law to be read or taught before men, women, children, and the stranger. Not only were these commandments given to the children of Israel, and we see the example, we have a model that's given in Deuteronomy 32, 1 and 2, that addresses this very thing. I get, give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. What's under discussion? What's the context? This is the very next chapter after Deuteronomy 31 that we were just reading in. And what's under discussion is the words of God's mouth. Verse 2, My doctrine shall drop as rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Have you ever thought about in the rainforest when it comes to shower? You've got huge trees, you have smaller trees, you have smaller vegetation, down to a blade of grass that's just emerged from the soil. That's the, the example that we're given here in Deuteronomy 32. These large trees, smaller trees, the blades of grass, the rain is God's doctrine, it's coming down. The older adult gets what they need when the Word is read and taught. The younger adult gets what they need when the Word is read and taught. And what does this tell us? The blade of grass that's just emerged has a little bitty root on it. All that rain falling and going into the soil, you know what? It takes just what it needs to be healthy and to grow and to thrive and to become a, a large plant. This is in the context of teaching God's Word. And I fail to be able to understand why people will not grasp this point and see that we are to gather together in that format as we read the law. Well, that brings us to the church. That's where we're at this morning, isn't it? We've used these examples from the Old Testament because as we stated earlier, these things have not changed. And when we begin to read about the church and the format that it was taught in in the New Testament, remember we're going to restore that pattern from the New Testament. We read about them coming together. The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 14 gives us regulations for all the assemblies. It would be nice if we could read every verse and make comment. We're not going to have time to do that today. But here's something you can do. Take your Bible home, open us 1 Corinthians 14, and read that and see what the Bible tells us about our church assemblies. I'm going to summarize verse 
3, 12, 19, and 26 teaches that the goal of the teacher is to edify the assembly. Verses 7 through 11, the teachers are to speak so they can be understood. Verses 23 and 26 emphasize the fact that this arrangement is a together arrangement. Verses 23 to 25 teach us that conversions can take place in the assembly. 27 to 29, those that are speaking in tongues are languages that can't be understood. They're to be silent unless those languages can be interpreted. The whole emphasis of 1 Corinthians 14 is to follow this pattern where God's people can be taught and where they can be edified. If we can't understand the language, then we're not going to be able to understand the edification that's being given. What we find in 1 Corinthians 14 is that qualified men are allowed to speak in the assembly. Verse 29 says, While one speak, the others are to judge what is being taught. Some formats for teaching, there's no one there except the teacher, and that teacher might be confused, and they might teach something false. But in this setting, there's one teacher or multiple teachers, but they speak one at a time, and the others are sitting and they're judging what is being taught. If I teach something incorrect this morning that's not found in God's Word, please come and correct me. That's the process that this format of teaching provides us, checks and balances to make sure that the truth is being taught. The teachers are to speak to the assembly, as I said, one by one. All things are to be done decently and in order. Women are to be silent in the assembly, not even to ask a question. These instructions are given to all churches everywhere, according to verse 36. We can flip over to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, and Paul states again that what he teaches here, he teaches in every place that he goes. These are our perimeters for our church services if we want to restore the New Testament church. If that's not important to us, if we want to make adjustments that make sense to us, or we want to follow other men's recommendations, then maybe this isn't important. We need to follow the will of God if we're going to have a part in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 37, these instructions are the commandments of the Lord. These are not opinions. They're not something that we can take and leave as an option, but they are the commandments of the Lord. Verse 38, if anyone does not acknowledge these commandments, he is not to be acknowledged in the assembly. As we look to this set of perimeters for the church assembly, we see that it lines up with what we've already read. That everyone is there. The whole church comes together in one place. That there is teaching. That it is done for the edification. That people can come here and they can learn. People that are unbelievers or untaught can come in as visitors. And this chapter teaches that they can learn and they can be edified by their time that they spend here. The church assembly comes together. 
Hebrews 10, verse 25, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching." You see the little word, together? It's contained in every one of these other verses that are here on the bottom of the screen in black. Because every time we read about the church assembling for edification, they assemble in a together format. We not one time, we do not one time read of the church being called together for edification where they're divided up. That's not something that we find portrayed anywhere in the Bible, starting in Genesis all the way through the book of Revelations. These two verses, as I stated, deal with the role of women in the assembly. We read through them earlier. We're not going to take time to do that again right now. Tonight, during this, at the 6 o'clock service, we're going to deal specifically with the role of women in the teaching plan or pattern that God has given us. And I want you to be sure and come back and hear a more detailed study of that. But what we find, these two verses are parallel verses. We can take these thoughts and we can see that they are reflected in the other verse almost exactly. Verse 11, let the woman learn in silence. Over in 1 Corinthians 14, if they will learn. In silence, let your women keep silence with all subjection to be under obedience. But I suffer not a woman to teach for it is not permitted unto them to speak, nor to usurp authority over the man. They are commanded to be under obedience, but to be in silence, and a shame for women to speak. These verses go together. They teach the same thing. Where one of them applies, both of them applies. And I will tell you today that these verses apply in this assembly. They do not apply outside the assembly. The assembly is when that first song is started here and we start the service. At that point, that assembly starts. And from that point forward, the women are not to speak. They're to be silent. They're not to ask questions. They cannot teach anyone in this environment and they must not usurp authority. What happens when we are out of the assembly? God regulates this in a very different way. Once we say amen in the final prayer, you know what happens here? The men start talking, but the women do too. There's not much silence here, either before or after, because people are visiting. And outside of that assembly, women are not required to be silent. They can teach anyone, children, women, or men. And we will demonstrate that tonight in our study as we look to many examples that we have in God's Word. This is the format and the su summary of a women's role in this plan that God has given to us. God's plan for teaching His people, for them to be men, women, children, and the unlearned or the unbeliever, noted in 1 Corinthians 14, to be gathered together for the teaching of the Word of God. As I mentioned, there's no commands, no examples of Bible classes in God's Word. In fact, William Banowski, who was a member of the church, 
wrote this. The idea of Sunday school apparently originated with Robert Rakes, an Englishman, in 1780. He went on to say, Churches of Christ borrowed from denominational neighbors the Sunday school idea when it was hale and hearty. This did not come from a study of Scripture. This came from the minds of men. Here's a history of the Bible class system. We read uh, in the Garden of Eden where God started His law about His pattern for teaching His people. That's over on your left, and all the way over here on your right is 2020. Robert Rakes was the first to start Sunday school. He was teaching children working in factories, reading and writing, and arithmetic, but this soon took off. And the churches began to do this, and then it transformed into this idea of we're going to give spiritual training in addition to this other training. And we know today that the Bible class is a transformation of where this started in 1780. The Sunday school or Bible class came to America in 1787. The churches of Christ began to adopt this practice in, 19, in 1850. Conservative churches began to adopt this practice in the 1900s. This practice, as far as within the churches of Christ, has been going on a little over a hundred years. I want you to notice that God's plan worked for 5,780 years. We started back in Genesis, roughly 4,000 years to the time of Christ. We've lived approximately 2,000 since then. For all this time, God's people were taught in the ways that we've noticed this morning. If this is something that is necessary to complete the body of Christ, how did they get along for that period of time? For that matter, how did earlier dispensations get along if this later plan is what is needed? We're going to stop right here, and as I mentioned, we'll continue tonight, but I want to make some observations about what we've studied this morning. Number one, we have determined that God has given a pattern regarding His will for teaching His people. We've noted that this plan started in the Garden of Eden and has continued until this present day. Thereby, we can note the information throughout the Bible, such as the passages that we noted in Deuteronomy, are helpful as we examine and seek to establish God's pattern for teaching His people. God's legislation by command and example clearly demonstrate that the home is the proper place for children to receive their foundational edification. Anything that distracts or comes between a child and his parents will diminish the child's opportunity to receive the proper spiritual training. God's plan demonstrates that in addition to children being taught at home, they can learn the will of God by being in the assembly along with the men, the women, and the stranger. The question becomes, do we have deep enough faith to follow the pattern, to trust God that His way is the best way, or will we choose another path?
We have observed that all assemblies of the church are regulated by 1 Corinthians 14. We discovered that it follows the pattern established from the beginning. We noted the together arrangement. It's demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 14 as well as throughout the book of Acts. Nowhere in God's Word do we find command or example to divide the church for the purpose of edification. The pattern provides a plurality of supervised, qualified men to teach at one time in front of God's assembly. Women are to be silent. And number six, we find no biblical reason to practice church Bible classes. In fact, we see that this system conflicts with the pattern that's set forth in God's Word. As I stated, our goal in the beginning as elders of Northwest Church of Christ is to follow the Bible pattern and to restore the New Testament church. We cannot do that when we practice systems or place attachments to our congregation that is not found in the Bible. God's way is the best, and it's the only way. Thank you for your patient listening this morning, giving us time to cover this information. We're going to offer an invitation at this time for those that might need to respond. The church is here to help you if you have a need as a Christian through receiving prayers of the church. We would assist you in that this morning. If you're here and you've been taught and you want to obey the gospel, remember we teach the same conversion plan that we find taught in the New Testament. Believing, repenting, confessing, being baptized for the remission of sins. If you haven't done that, you need to do that so that you will be a part of the kingdom of heaven that you will have the blessings that God offers to His people. If we can help you, please come forward and be seated here on the front as we stand and sing the song of invitation.